So I am going to continue with my next segment and my response to Pastor Mike Winger's non-Calvinistic interpretation of Romans 9. This is part two, uh, although the first part was more of a side trail. Now, here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to try to keep this as brief as possible, but it's going to... I think, at least what I have planned, it's going to flow a little differently than the other segments in this. So I I noticed what I think is the biggest difference between Calvinists and non-Calvinists when we read uh, Romans chapter 9 and come to different interpretations. I think that there's a a major issue between us. And I think we're going to see that reflected today, but it will come up again So you're probably going to hear me say this again twice, but I think that'd be good. It'd be helpful for us to understand each other. And here's what I think that that difference is and what we're going to see today. I think the key question, I could be wrong about this, but I think the key question is this question. Is Romans chapter 9 verse 8, this concept of being the children of God the children, well, maybe not because it's so obvious. What I'm asking is so obvious, so maybe it's not, but I'll just go with it. Is this right here, this promise right here, I've highlighted it, I'm circling it, big arrow. It is the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So here's the question. Is being a child of the promise who is counted as offspring... So if you are a person that you are a child of the promise, not of the flesh, but of the promise, is that salvific? Is it, is, is to be the offspring mentioned here in verse eight, if you are someone who, who can rightly claim I'm of that offspring, is that essentially the same thing as saying you're saved? Uh, likewise, over here, this, this phrase, the promise, or if you are a child of the promise, is that this, essentially the same thing as saying you're saved? And here's why I ask that, because I think what we're going to see is Pike, Pastor Mike, I called him Pike, Pastor Mike is going to, I think, speak out of both sides of his mouth. He's going to contradict himself. He's going to go back and forth between a, a salvific and a vocational or a national understanding of the promise. That's the key question you have to ask in Romans chapter 9. What is the promise and what does it mean to be counted of the promise, in the promise, to be the offspring of the promise, to be part of the promised line? Is that just purely a vocational thing or is it a salvific thing? Because what you'll find in most, not all, but in most non-Calvinistic kind of Arminian readings of the text is that a lot rides upon this idea that verses 9 through 13 are not talking about spiritual salvation. It's not talking about justification, salvation. It's not what we call soteriological, the study of salvation. It's vocational. It's election for as a nation or election for a particular job, specifically, right, to bring it to Christ or to be part of the promised line of Christ. And you know, if, if all you had was verses 9 through 13, that would make sense to some degree because, you know, there's, there's not a lot of salvation language in there. Uh, you know, there's a lot of language about the patriarchs having sons and women having children and one son serving the other. And that's the context that election is used. So maybe this election is just about families and vocations and nations and it's not about salvation because where's, where's anything about salvation in 9 through 13? 
What I'm going to show, hopefully show, show us though, is that verse 8 is clearly about salvation. Well, really, everything is clearly about salvation from 1 through 8 and then from 14 on. And so 9 through 13 in that context, context have to be seen as salvific. And I think the way I'm going to try to prove that today is I'm going to show you that I think Pastor Mike is going to contradict himself. He's essentially going to give us two contradictory answers about what is the promise here in, in uh, this verse. I just got a notification from my computer that my battery mouse is low. And so it may shut off on me, which would be a huge bummer because I'm trying to highlight stuff for us today. Um, so we'll see. Or I could, let me see if I can maybe switch mouses for a second. Hold on. Sorry. Brief, brief intermission. Let's see. Did that work? Did that work? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I get it. Not be okay for now. All right. I think we're good, good to go for a little bit. Apologize for that. Okay. So here's what we're going to focus on. Pastor Mike, we're going to hear his, this first sound bite. I'm going to hear, by the way, I'm just going to play a short clip, but you can listen to the whole, the whole thing and see that I'm not taking him out of context or misrepresenting him. He's specifically addressing the first four verses right now, and he's going to focus in the clip I'm going to show you. He's going to focus on this term, the promise, here. But what I'm hoping that you will see is that, I feel like I just moved the screens over, uh, is that this concept here of the promises, his commentary, he's going to make clear that he agrees with me that all of this right here is speaking about physical Jews, irregardless of whether they believe in Christ or not. All right? Paul, Paul, Paul makes that pretty clear, and Pastor Mike's agree with me. He, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish myself that I were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's my kinsmen according to the flesh. So Paul has clearly identified the object, the subjects of verses 4 through 5 as being physical brothers and sisters, not spiritual, right? Physical brothers and sisters, not spiritual. And so therefore, these are, 4 and 5 are things that any physical, natural descendant of Isaac possesses, even if they reject Christ, so four through five are not salvific. This is just what you have if you are simply a physical descendant of Isaac. You already have this. You're not trying to achieve these things. They already belong to you. Christ is already from your race. You're not trying to make Christ of your race. The patriarchs are already of your race. You're not trying to make that. You are an Israelite. You are nationally adopted. You have the covenants and the giving of the law were given to your people group right? All of these things. So this is key. We're, I'm going to agree with Pastor Mike that the subject of verses four and five are physical Jews, whether they believe or not, with special interest in those who don't believe. The subject are unbelieving, natural-born Jews. And here's what he has to say. These all pertain to Israel. And then finally, the promises. The promises. And this seems to be a generic promises. 
God has promised Israel a whole bunch of stuff. A whole bunch of stuff. And those promises still pertain to Israel. And Paul's talking about the Israel according to the flesh. He, he goes, literally, there are physical descendants of Abraham and the promises of God are still upon them. And we'll get more into that as we get into to the next you know, two chapters after nine about God's future plans for Israel. This is that future I think the disciples so eagerly expected, thought Jesus would bring right away, but it was coming at the second coming of Christ, not the first coming. Okay, so I think he made that pretty clear. But just briefly to reiterate, speaking of the promises before that, he said all of these things belong to physical Israel, including the promises. And he clearly understands that this is unbelieving Israel, which he made clear in the first part of the video I didn't play. But because he also says, I think these promises pertain to Romans chapter 11. And what he's referencing is Romans chapter 11. There's this verse, which on the surface, at least, seems to indicate that that one day God will, in fact, bring about the actual salvation of all the unbelieving Jewish people. So he clearly understands that verses 4 and 5 are, are pertaining to unbelieving physical Jews. It's, really, it's, it's important. And what's, this is what's also key. They already have these things. They currently have the promises. They currently have the patriarchs. They currently are Israelites. These are not things that they are awaiting. These are not things that they need s still to do something special to, to, to have. They already have them. And that's key, okay? And here's why it's key. So now we're going to play some of his commentary on verses 6 through 8. And notice what he says in this uh, as he's talking about this concept of what we call spiritual Israel, or um, as, as the text says, it is not as though the word of God has not failed. We're going to get into that in, the, in another video. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So here's the point I'm going to make, and I think we're going to see Pastor Mike be contradictory on this concept here, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. To be part of, to be a child of the promise and to be counted as offspring is something that not all who are descended from Israel can say. But all who are descended from Israel can say verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 does belong to all the descendants of Israel, but Paul introduces a new category in verse 6 and 7 about something that does not pertain to all of Israel, but only to who? The children of the promise. So what does that mean? This concept here, to be a child of God and be counted as offspring, this is different than 4 and 5. Because 4 and 5 is something unbelieving Jews currently have, while 8 is something unbelieving Jews don't have. So th this promise, this lineage, cannot be the same thing as this. Does that make sense? I hope so. It's hard to do online because I can't see people's faces. I don't know if you're confused or not, but I'm just going to hope you're not. 4 and 5 is something Israel, unbelieving Israel has and is. Versus verse 8 is something unbelieving Israel does not have and cannot claim. 
But notice what Pastor Mike says now that he's talking about this concept in verse 8. Paul's point. That's the point. The Old Testament makes it clear that not every descendant of Abraham is going to carry those, those things we mentioned. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises. Um, these are not all going to be in all of Abraham's descendants. In- okay, so notice what he just did. He just equated, forgive me, he's really on verse 9 at this point because he's talking about how scripture is being backed up to prove verse 8. So he's essentially agreeing that 9 through 13 is proof of 8. Well, maybe he's on 7. I can't quite remember. But either way, take 7 through 13. 7 through 13, because he introduced this idea of the word of God. Has the word of God failed? So 7 through 13 are essentially a bunch of scripture passages to prove this thesis in verse 8. That just because you're a child of the flesh does not make you a child of God. So to be a child of the promise and to be counted as offspring doesn't necessarily depend on whether you're a child of the flesh. And he admitted that in the phrase, in in, in the clip that we played. I, I wish I could rewind it. But what did he go on to say? The Old Testament is trying to prove that it is not necessarily the descendants of Isaac who have what? He said all of these things in verses 4 and 5. So what has he done? He's equated the offspring here, this, this concept of being a child of God, children of the promise and offspring. He equated that as, this, as essentially summarizing what he talked about in 4 and 5. L- let me see if I can just rewind it a little bit. I think probably just go back, what, 10, 27, 10? It's not all of your descendants, is it? No, that's Paul's point. That's the point. The Old Testament makes it clear that it not is. every descendant of Abraham is going to carry those those things we mentioned. The adopt- They're not going to carry those things we mentioned. And what are those things we mentioned? The adoption? The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises. Um, these are not all going to be in all of Abraham's descendants. These are not going to be in all of Abraham's descendants. But what did he say during his commentary on this? That this is part of all Abraham's descendants and that some of these things we're still going to see Romans chapter 11. So do you see that contradiction? Is verse eight essentially saying that not all of the physical Jews can claim four and five? That's what he just said. But I think he also told us earlier that four and five is something that all Jews can claim. And here's why this all becomes so important. Because in order to read Romans 9 in a non-Calvinistic way, you have to try to make the promise to not be soteriological. But contextually, it absolutely has to be. That's the whole point of the passage. So let me, let me just give you my immediate and larger context as to why verse 8 is soteriological and therefore verses 9 through 13 have to be soteriological. So notice, Paul begins, how does he begin? Does he begin by lamenting the fact that there are some physical Jews who don't have the privileges of national election? No. He laments the exact opposite. He laments that they have the privileges of natural of national election, but they don't have spiritual election. That's what the whole context has been set up for. These people are precious to me. Why? Because they've been nationally elected, but not spiritually elected. 
And I think Pastor Mike actually agreed with that interpretation of the first five verses. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So I agree with Pastor Mike's interpretation that what Paul is saying is that lots of Jews who are nationally elect people, the chosen people, are not spiritually chosen. They are not united to Christ. And Paul says, I love them so much. I would be willing to lose my salvation if it meant their salvation. And we talked about that in the first video. And, and then in verse 4, a Paul essentially does is he reminds us of why these unbelieving people matter so much. And it's because they are Israelites, adoption, glory, covenants, giving law, promises. To them belong the patriarchs in Jesus Christ. So here's my question. Is an unbelieving Jew still physically related to Jesus? Yes. So how could Pastor Mike say down here that that's something that isn't true of the natural descendants? Of course that's true of the natural descendants. It's what it literally means to be natural. <laughs> so verses 4 and 5 are something that unbelieving Jews can claim. So it cannot be what Paul is talking about in verses 8 through 13. Because in verses 8 through 13, he's talking about what they don't have. And what is it that we know they don't have? Where is it? Union with Christ. Union with Christ. So this question here, it is not as though the word of God has failed. What's the objection that he's raising? He's not raising the objection that these people are not nationally elected. Or that they're not physically elected. He's saying even though they are physically elected, they are not spiritually elected. And the question then becomes, how is it that the people who are so nationally, vocationally important, why would God not elect them spiritually? Or, or Well, no, that's actually the question he's going to get to. How is it that the most important people group in the whole Bible, the people that have all of these things, how is it that they are cut off from their Messiah the scripture says that the Messiah would save these people. So verse 6 is raising a soteriological question. Why? Because in verse 1, that's what he's lamenting. And forgive me, 1 through 3. He's not lamenting that they don't have a national vocation. He affirms that they have a national election, a vocational election. He's lamenting that they don't have a spiritual election, that they're cut off from Christ. So he is proving why the people who are nationally elected, how it's not against scripture to say, but they're not necessarily spiritually elected. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through your Isaac, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So here's the point I'm going to make, and then we'll wrap this up. This concept raised as being a child of Abraham and as being a child of God is essentially being a child of the promise and being of the offspring, right? So Abraham was given what? The Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promise. And that promise is what Paul has in mind here when he says that all throughout the Old Testament, God winnowed people from that promise. He cut Esau out. He cut Ishmael out. 
So the question then becomes, okay, is the promise, we, we, here's what we can agree on. What is the promise then that's being focused on? It's Abraham's promise, right? The children of Abraham, the Abrahamic promise that he would have these descendants, the children of Abraham and his offspring. That's the promise. And it's different from four and five because that's something that the Jews do have. Being of Abraham's special promise line is not something they necessarily have. They have it physically, children of the flesh, but they don't have it by promise. They are not children of the promise just because they're children of the flesh. Four and five is affirming they are children of the flesh. This is what they have by virtue of being children of the flesh. But here's what they don't have merely by their flesh. Children of God, children of promise. So this promise here has to be salvation. It has to be soteriological. It has to be salvific. This is what he's lamenting. It's the union of Christ that they don't have. So therefore, what Paul is doing with these Old Testament examples is he's taking the physical election and using them to prove what point? That just as God was sovereign in his physical election, that is a representative that he is also the equally sovereign in his spiritual election, just like he could cut Isaac, or forgive me, cut Ishmael and Esau out of the salvific promise, he can cut any Jew out of the salvific promise. He has never been obligated to save all Jews, but the promise has to be considered salvific. This is about salvation. So yes, when he's talking about this election in 9 through 12 and 13, it is salvific. Let me prove it to you two other ways. Right now in our church, we're preaching through the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, I'm not going to read all of it to you. You need to go read it. But the book of Galatians deals a ton with this issue of the promise, the Abrahamic promise, being a child of Abraham, being part of the promised line given to Abraham. But what you'll also notice is that in the book of Galatians, the concept of being justified and receiving the Spirit are treated as synonymous with being of the Abrahamic promise. And this is why Baptists and Presbyterians both see a connection between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. They essentially see them as being the same thing in slightly different ways, but they would agree with that. Abrahamic covenant equals new covenant, the covenant of salvation. To be in the Abrahamic is to be in the new. They're both soteriological covenants. They're salvific covenants. Verses 4 through 5 here, most of this is regards to the Mosaic Covenant. Not all of it, but most of this is just natural things that they have by virtue of being physical descendants of Isaac and going through Moses. But this special promise in verse 8 is the Abrahamic Covenant. It is salvific. Isaac is not just representative of being in a bloodline. He's representative of being chosen to be part of the Abrahamic promise, which is a saving promise. Look at what he says in verse 2. Or chapter 2 of Galatians. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. He goes on, we have been died the law, we've been crucified with Christ. So gaining righteousness Christ died for nothing if we are saved by the law. So clearly, clearly, Galatians 2, 11 through 21 is about salvation, justification, righteousness, 
Union with Christ. This is salvation. But look at what he quickly turns to. Galatians 3, he continues this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by faith? So again, receiving the Spirit, so this is still salvific. And then what does he immediately link this to? So I ask, does God give you his Spirit, work miracles among you by works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he connects receiving the Spirit, being justified by faith, salvation. He connects salvation by faith to the Abrahamic promise where he also received righteousness by faith. And he says this, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. That's what takes us back to being offspring, children uh, of the of offspring. Not all are children of Abraham because they are of offspring. What does Galatians say? Understand then that those who are of faith are children of Abraham. But, what does Galatians say that being a child of Abraham means? Does it just mean you're nationally elected? No, it's the exact opposite. It's from all nations, people who, even Gentiles, that God would justify them by faith, just like Abraham was justified by faith. And we could continue through every chapter. Children of God, uh, he talks about, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God, just like in Romans 9. And this is salvific language. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. And this is all clearly soteriological. And he does this in Galatians 4, when he gives the allegorical reading of Ishmael and Isaac and Abraham and Sarah and the Hagar being the slave. And you're a slave if you're justified by law. And read the book of Galatians. And here's what you will find is crystal clear. That to be a child of Abraham and to be of the promised line, to be in that special offspring is not national, it's salvific. This Romans 9, 6 through 13 is absolutely focused on salvation. It is not focused on national election. That's the exact opposite. National election is what the Jews already had. But Paul's lamenting that they're lacking something more important. This isn't about national election. This is about Paul lamenting that they are not spiritually elect, which is the same thing as being of Abraham's spiritual offspring, being counted as part of the promise, being a child of God. By the way, one more argument. Pastor Mike agreed, listen to the video, he agreed that verses 1 through 5 is salvation language. He says very explicitly, listen to the last video we watched, that Paul is lamenting that the Jews are not saved. Now, look at the end of Romans 9. What then shall we say? The Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. That is a righteousness by faith. So, I think all of us would agree that Romans 9 begins with the context of salvation. Romans 9 ends with the context of what? Salvation. And it gets better. What led into Romans 9? Romans chapter 8. And how does Romans chapter 8 end? Remember this great passage? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called, justified, glorified. What shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing can separate us from our union with Christ. So Romans, how does Romans chapter 8 end? With salvation, soteriology. 
How does Romans 8 end? Salvation. How does Romans 9 begin? Salvation. How does Romans 9 end? Salvation. And then let's go to Romans 10. What's Romans 10's about? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have zeal, but they did not achieve righteousness. And then he goes on, the famous verse, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And there's the famous missionary. How can they call on him whom they have not believed? How can they believe they never heard? So what is Romans 10 clearly about? Salvation. So look at this again. Romans 8, salvation. Romans 10, salvation. Beginning of Romans 9, salvation. End of Romans 9, salvation. So what on earth makes me think that this small little passage, this one little paragraph, these two paragraphs in Romans 9, break this entire chain and talk about something entirely different? Well, not entirely different. They're definitely tangentially related. They're part of the context. But here's what we're saying. that Paul. It's kind of like Paul's schizophrenic. Romans 8, you've been saved by God. You're free. You're free. You've been saved. Romans 9, I'm so sad that the Jews aren't saved. But let me really quickly remind you that the Jews are vocationally elected. But anyway, now I'm so sad that they're not saved. In Romans 10, and they're not saved. And the whole thing is about salvation. But what Pastor Mike and all of his Arminian contemporaries want to do is make this one little paragraph not about salvation. But it is. It is about salvation, and that's why I think he was inconsistent. What we saw from Pastor Mike was that Pastor Mike interpreted this promise here as being both at one time a spiritual salvific one and at another time a flesh one. He wasn't able to be consistent, and if you're inconsistent, then your position is probably not true. We'll get into that more as we go through some of this stuff verse by verse. Thanks for sticking with me. As always, maintain the gospel, maintain the fight. God bless.